1: Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Kathy Sheridan. If you are a relatively new listener to the podcast, or if this is your first time listening to us, thank you very much for choosing us. We're very grateful indeed. Now, today we are talking to former Irish Senator and Belfast woman, Maria Cahill, who at the age of 16 was sexually abused by a prominent member of the IRA. In 2014, she decided to go public with her story highlighting the inhumane and demoralising quote unquote investigation led by the IRA into her abuse which put her in a room face to face with her abuser.
2: Just to explain um, because I couldn't verbalise what had happened in the first couple of IRA meetings using inverted commas I sat down and I wrote out three basic incidents and I still have those bits of paper Um, and they were handed to him and he was
1: then able to read them out. In her new memoir, Rough Beast, My Story and the Reality of Sinn Féin, Cal is laying bare the devastating impact of the abuse and the trauma of the IRA investigation that followed. She also details her childhood in West Belfast, growing up in a deeply Republican household with family members in the IRA. Since going public with the story in 2014 in a BBC documentary, Cal has been the subject of much public and political debate. In her memoir, She explores how she was treated by Sinn Féin in the aftermath and badly let down, she feels, by Northern Ireland's legal system. Here she is with a story that is both compelling and maddening and to this day remains baffling. Maria, some people would like to keep the politics out of this and just focus on the story terrible story of your abuse, but in fact, they're quite inseparable. That's not possible to do. So just tell me a bit about your background to explain why that's the case.
2: Well, yeah, I think that is true. Um, I was born in West Belfast, which is a Republican stronghold and, you know, has been for a long time. My father's side of the family were are a Republican family going way back. I mean, we traced the Cahill Roots way back to the IRB and the Fenian movement and all of that. So you can see that, you know, from family to family and interest. And they also, some of the same boys' names come up over and over. So they must have all named their kids after uh, the parents. But my uncle, grand-uncle Joe, my father's uncle Joe, was the chief of staff at one time of the IRA. Um, he was heavily involved. And then later, in later years, became the honorary vice president of Sinn Féin. Um, my cousin Siobhan O'Hanlon was uh, arrested, uh, she was part of a bomb factory, she's now deceased, and spent time in jail. I had other uncles on the run, I had other uncles in jail and my grandfather was interned three times. So I grew up, you know, very very much so, albeit politics wasn't really discussed in my immediate house. You know, when I went to my grandparents' house, it, like it was inescapable. And I think this would have been a case of just, yeah I don't mean just sexual mm-hmm. abuse, but it, the focus would have just been on the sexual abuse had the IRA not decided they involved themselves in it. Mm-hmm. And once they took that decision and I didn't ask for that, it then became a political issue because the IRA, you know, yeah. were very much intertwined with Sinn Féin and in fact, some of the IRA meetings took place in, in Sinn Féin's offices.
1: So therefore, Maria, it is set in this context of IRA, total IRA immersion in every aspect of... Community life. Mm-hmm. I mean, you describe how wives were ordered to take back alcoholic husbands, forbidden to separate from uh, uh, from um, imprisoned partners. Um, obviously, lots of knee cappings and that sort of thing. That was so much a part. But you were you were actually raised on an estate in a, in a housing scheme that actually wasn't Ballymurphy. It wasn't. Your your parents were sort of. Out of it?
2: Well, yes, I mean, they owned their own house when my grandparents, well, they later bought their own houses, but at that point in time they were in social housing. So Bella Murphy and Turf Lodge are two huge like sprawling estates at the top of the White Rock Road, which is just the feeder route off the Falls Road, if you like. We were in Andersonstown, so that was just off where Kennedy Way would be, if anybody's familiar with Belfast. It was a slightly more, you know, it was a middle-class area. Mm. People owned their own homes. There were only 14 houses in our street. My mother was a primary school principal. My father had come through social co-ops, you know, with my grandfather, and they started up a picture framing business, and he kept that going then for number of years and then he went and trained in counselling actually and then became a probation service officer before he retired. So, you know, very much what you would see in Belfast as being a middle class Mm. family. Um, But, you know, my grandparents were working class. They're proud of it. They grew up in a working class housing estate. It was an insular kind of environment to be in and it was an enjoyable environment to be in until Mm. abuse came calling and then... And they were extremely
1: protective
2: my my mother's mother was extremely protective she didn't want me outside the house um, in case something happened My I had more freedom in Ballymurphy because there are lots of, of kids lots of cousins in, in my in our house and myself and my other cousin were the two oldest we had an older cousin she, she later died so we were kind of the oldest ones if you like and then all of the other ones were in steps and stairs like my father had eight brothers and one sister and they all had big families except for ours there were two and ours myself and my sister so we I had that freedom. I used to take the dog and take the lead and go walking around the streets. And I had the one thing about Ballamurphy is when people who are living there very rarely want to move out of the area. So when my father's brothers got married and they had their kids, you know, quite a lot of them moved within the estate, a few streets away. So you could go around the next street and walk into someone's house or the next street. You know, was very much that. Do community I recall, atmosphere. Do I recall, at one
1: point you said that you had 100 members in your extended family.
2: There's probably more now, actually. <laughs> I mean, my grandfather, I, he had, um, I think, four brothers and five sisters or something like that. i need to go back and look at the actual mm. family tree. But there were branches everywhere, you yes. know, and they all had big families. Most of them had big families too. So when it came to the court case and we were trying to work out whether people could be jigsaw identified, I went then to the Mm. great-grandkids and the great-great-grandkids and I think we came up with a figure, it was like 180 or something like that,
1: right across, you know. But I I,
2: I wouldn't have an exact figure, there's probably more of them now. And of
1: course, we're not talking about this merely just to say how big a family you had and what a lovely sort of family-oriented upbringing you had. Mm. But because everything was steeped in family, tradition, Sinn Féin, IRA, these were areas that were intensely tribal.
2: Um... Yeah, but I wouldn't have seen it like that when I mm. when I was a kid and I don't think people would see it. Not everybody would see it like that now, but it certainly was and felt at times, uh, well, it was very enjoyable, but it was also insidious. You know, and I think that in a, an environment where people, like post-69, I most of that area would have been IRA-supporting. You know, a lot of the families had been interned when it, the internment sweep came in. Um, people then were jailed afterwards for IRA activity. Um And then the other side of things, on my mother's side, then the official IRA. So that that official IRA, provisional IRA feud obviously had happened too. So you had all of the intricacies of that and, you know, rival kind of feuds in within areas even. And then you had the the British Army on the streets. You had the RUC. So you had this kind of hotbed of everything to do with conflict. And also, you know, like one of, we had a bomb. My great aunt was bombed in her living room. Um, She survived it. We had another uncle who had a bomb placed under a black taxi that he was driving. My other uncle Tom, my great uncle Tom, was shot on a milk float, you know, as part of that feud between the provisional and official IRA. So we were also targets of violence as well, you know, as as an extended family unit, as well as being very much a Republican family. And I don't think there's any escape from that whenever you're growing up in that environment, even though, you know, like... My school years were in the 90s, which was the movement, you know, moving towards peace. 94 ceasefire, you know, 97 ceasefire. Um, and that should have been a much better time to be
1: around. And ironically for me, that became, became the, the most dangerous period. Yeah. yeah, because you were born in 1981, which was 18 years before the Good Friday Agreement. And as you say, there you were in your teens and those years. Uh I, <laughs> Republican royalty. I know it's a term you hate, but nonetheless, highly respected family in those areas and that sense of family and everything. You, you mentioned you were radicalised in your teenage years. Just describe that to me.
2: I'm not really sure I understand it myself, other than I tried to explain it in the book by saying it nearly seeps into your DNA. You know, it's part of your makeup. You're part of this family unit. People will always say, which one of the cahals are you? You know, who do you belong mm. to? And it became then something but uh, I learned very quickly, you know, people say she's one of the, well, they say cackles yeah. in West yeah. Belfast, they can't, you know, a lot of people don't <laughs> pronounce the H's. So she's one of the cackles, became a thing, a, a part of something. So I, I had this, there was this sparky energy going on as well. Mm. I was working in a radio station yeah. and it was really enjoyable. There were ex-prisoners, you know, you'd be tripping over them, getting their microphone, you know, or or trying to put a CD in for somebody or, or whatever all of these people were starting to be released from prison as well. Mm-hmm. Remember mm-hmm. around that point in time in the, the Good Friday Agreement? So we had a lot of that as well and we were broadcasting to, to prisoners' families. In fact, we had a programme called Jailhouse Rock, which which broadcast out to Longhead at the time. So, you know, it's a very waffly way of saying I have no idea how that happens. I, I do know that if you grow up in any environment, you subsume everything that's around mm-hmm. you like a sponge and you take it in. And, you know, in my case didn't really stand much of a chance in terms of of republicanism because I was around it and it was enjoyable. You know, I have to say there's always that thing with teenagers too where, you know, riots are raging on the streets and while you might not be, you know, involved yourself in throwing any stones or whatever, um, in my case it was an exciting place to be. Like I I write in the book about one particular incident on the Armour Road, you know, where the apprentice boys were marching and residents there were having a protest against it and at one point during the night... Somebody on a project projecting on a wall, the film Braveheart, you know, yes. to kind of stir people up. And all of those things are off the wall and mad and, and whatever, but they're also very attractive to an impressionable young teenager. And also, I was treated um, like an adult. I wasn't treated like a kid. And I think when you're around adults who treat you like an adult when you're 15, 16, 17 years of age, You know that you are impressionable around that, and there's something there which is attractive about that, particularly to a young woman. And you were
1: genuinely a political nerd. You weren't just there because it was kind of exciting. You were there because you loved politics. Yeah. Um, tell I mean when you when you say you loved politics and you were a political nerd, what does that mean, Maria? That this was you were still in secondary school at that point. So yeah. what does that mean in practical terms? Well,
2: I did politics for A level. I had a very very good politics teacher who came from a different tradition than I. I did, and I, I found that mental stretching, if you like, um, was beneficial for me. Uh, you know, I don't have any real way. I do know that in later years I was given an Asperger's diagnosis. So mm. I remember things like press releases. I could tell you, you know, who said what and when going back years and years and it's just a feature of my brain that I can do. But I can't remember how to get to the nearest toilet in this building, you know. (laughs) So it's, a political nerd means that I just, like I have the radio on all the time, I'll have the TV on if there's an election happening, I'll have all on at once and I'll go from Room to room, like anybody who's interested in yes, politics and it would have been
1: all-encompassing. It wasn't Absolutely. just Northern
2: Ireland, it would have been... And also, remember, I was living what was happening on the TV news, on the radio news, so I yeah. was around people like Gerry Adams. I was seeing them on the TV and I knew them personally. So you had that whole allure of that around, know, oh, there's Gerry on the TV, you know. It wasn't yeah. that you were taking it particularly under your notice, but you were learning how when people were saying things in meetings, how they were then translating out onto the radio or the television. So uh, that was a, a very good... It actually, it stood me in good stead when I mm. then came up against them in later years. You because know? you
1: would have had a, quite a sophisticated understanding yep. of how the media worked. Yep.
2: Well, not just the media, but I was able to predict how Republicans then would probably react to different lines. And right. that, that was helpful for me. It should never have been... Like, I shouldn't have been in that position. Mm. But I, I found my early education within... Mm that Sinn Féin party very useful in later So Maria,
1: years. you were thriving. Uh, you were doing what you wanted to do. You were heavily involved in this office and presenting a show on the radio station. You were at the centre of things. And that all changed. You were well, 16, July 1997.
2: Yeah, I don't think I joined Sinn Féin Youth until probably actually after that. So this all happened very quickly. Um, I was involved in the radio station, which ran in the summer for four weeks at a time. So we were in the the starting period of, you know, the second radio, if you like. And that would have been July. So I turned, uh, I just turned 16 in May of that year, I just on my GCSEs. And in between the GCSEs and A-levels, then, you know, this period around the radio was happening and my parents had a house in Donegal and they were taking me with them until mm. this man said, no, we're sure she can stay with us and I'll get her up and down from the radio station. You know, we yeah. look after, leave her with us. And that, you know, that's what they did, thinking that it was a safe place to be. And then the abuse started within that period of time. And then all of those things around republicanism, you know, came as a result of the radio station that I was involved in. So while there was certainly an interest in all of that, I moved more towards that, you know,
1: as the abuse then had started and was continuing. So you had just finished your GCSEs, which was actually sort of a such a pivotal time in anybody's life. And there was a timing thing involved here where this man, the alleged abuser, had asked you to move guns mm-hmm. a few weeks before a few days before a few days mm-hmm. before, mm-hmm. and you felt there was a certain message conveyed in that tell us about
2: that I think retrospectively, looking back that it allowed me to think that he had access to weaponry, and it then created a an frisson of fright, if you like um Maybe that's not the right way to describe it, but it, it it certainly was in the back of my head then when the abuse uh, started. What it also did then was, I think, retrospectively, it was some kind of people won't understand this, but sometimes abusers use sweets to groom. Mm. Sometimes, you know, they use whatever a particular person is interested in. Because I was involved on the periphery, then you know there were you're out on the street, you're around Republicans. The radio station was mostly Republicans. This man asking me, he, you know, he came and sat down with another individual and said, you know, you're a smart girl and we look after you and we'd like you to move guns. They talked a, a particular method of, of putting them in the hold of these white gloves um, and going in a black taxi. I think they are doing at the time. So it was very kind of detailed and the hairs in the back of my neck were standing up. So mm. I was frightened by it. Um, I didn't do it. But within, you know, I think two or three days then, then once the abuse started, it certainly was a feature where I knew I knew without a shadow of a doubt that he was an IRA member. Sometimes you have suspicions around people or because he'd been in jail previously, you know, you might think that there's an involvement there, but this absolutely cemented that for me, Mm. which meant then that there was an additional level that I I then had to deal with.
1: So, Maria, I know, and you say it actually in the book, that you downplay the detail of the abuse. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it's still horrifying. Mm. So can you tell me insofar as you can, how that happened and how you responded to it.
2: Yeah, well, one of the things I I didn't want to do was put in, I could have put in reams of abuse, which would have taken up, you know, 20 books probably. Um, I, I'm conscious that perpetrators sometimes seek out material like that in order to to abuse and I don't want to be responsible for that. So I'm always very careful. Um, but in terms of, of how it happened, he had offered me a few tins or he offered me a tin of harp. And I then, of course, trying to be a big girl, you know, like I played guitar, he played guitar. There was a bit of, you know, mm. session music in the house and whatever. And this was going on. And I took this tin and I couldn't drink at all because I was, it was making me feel sick. So I was drinking a half a tin and putting it down and then drinking another half a tin and p- trying to make it look like I was keeping up with the adults in the room and then I fell asleep on the sofa and I remember it distinctly because the zip on these trousers was that most people have a zip at the front the zip on these trousers was at the back and that's what woke me up actually he had his hand down the, the front of my trousers and he was trying to locate the zip so I, um, I knew immediately it wasn't a good situation like I woke up and in a split second took a decision to remain to have my eyes closed as if I was still asleep and I stayed like that throughout all of every episode of the abuse I pretended to be asleep uh, for a number of reasons I think I, I was embarrassed by it I was frightened by it I didn't want him to know that I knew what he was doing and I didn't want to face the fact that he might know that he was what he was doing to me so I, all of that was playing but in the initial stages it was more like white noise like I used to As time went on, I used to get things like prayers mixed up or you would try and recite something in your head to just keep yourself focused. Or the other thing I would have done was dig my fingernails into my skin. If I was lying, whatever hand wasn't uh, visible or if you like, um, I would have kind of tucked it under my neck or whatever and and dug my fingernails in to shift the focus from the pain of what was happening. Um, And the most horrendous thing for me, actually, there's a point, and I think I have written this in the book, where he had ejaculated onto my he had my hand on his penis and he had ejaculated and then rubbed it on my stomach and he went into the kitchen and got kitchen roll and he came back and I could hear the kitchen roll ripping and he wiped the sofa but he didn't wipe me and I I think if there's anything that just describes how terrible that was, that was it because the room was very cold so I could feel all of this as it was happening and I couldn't do anything about it and I felt like less than dirt because the sofa was good enough to wipe but I wasn't and I, I think you know, I, I don't think I've actually properly spoken about that before, but that was just something that has always stuck with me. And on another occasion, he went into the bathroom and was sick after, it, and I felt then that he was sick because I was disgusting, you know, and that was a, a different, I had a period at that time, so that was the issue. But on the first night when he eventually went off and went up to bed, I, I left the, the living it was a tiny house, so I went from the living room and down the corridor into the bathroom, and I turned the tap on the sink and quietly washed um, you know, I I got toilet roll and whatever, and tried to wash as best I could, and I wanted to wash him off, and I, you know, that's always probably the thing that I will regret doing because, you know, his DNA was
1: everywhere and would have absolutely
2: proved that that something had happened. And
1: well, I think know. I think your description of all this in the book, Maria, is it's a masterclass for people who don't understand the the, the psychological side of this. Mm-hmm. And also, I have to say that I have two daughters who are a few years younger than you. And honestly, it's I, I, I doubt if any parent could read this no I'm, without mm, thinking of, of you in that situation.
2: And but in actual fact, both of my parents have taken a decision separately and I, I gave them the option of reading the book before it went public. And both of them felt that it would be too upsetting, you know, to do so. And I, I fully understand that and I, I think, you oh, know. All credit to them that they didn't ask me not to write it. And, you know, when I say in the book, they never once said to me, yeah. don't use your voice or don't write or whatever. And it's very, very
1: difficult for them, you know. Well, that is kind of heroic of them, mm, that they I didn't, so. that they managed not to say anything. <laughs> um, one thing you don't mention there, Maria, is what happened the next morning, which mm. left a sort of a mental scar on me. Um, describe what happened when you went the next morning.
2: He came down the stairs and kicked me. I was lying on the, the sofa um, and he came in. Um, and booted me on my lower back and said,
1: you know, get up and make me a coffee. What makes your case particularly confusing, I suppose, is the fact that you just couldn't go and report it. You felt you yep. couldn't. And I, I know that is quite common among um, abuse victims, mm-hmm. but yours was a particularly confused case. Yep. You There was nowhere you could go. You certainly weren't going to report it to the, what was then the RUC, because they were considered the enemy of the people.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, there there were a number of things going on there. I mean, I had been on trips with the RUC from school yes, so that I was yeah. starting to kind of find out a bit about mm. them, albeit that the Shinners then put a protest on outside my school and stopped it, you know, um, on one of the trips, which is also in the book. But it wasn't, uh, like, when you, I think when you grow up your whole life, my mother would never have used the word peelers and she never would have used the words Brits. We always had to say soldiers and police, and that was something that she she grew up. Or part of her studying was in England, and she was very strict about not dehumanizing people. And she also had seen the rough end of the army. I, mean, I think one British soldier had threatened to throw her into the back of a Saracen and rape her one time. So you know, she had she was fair yes. about it. Yeah. Um, but she she she'd have gone bananas like if we we had have engaged in some of the stuff that other people were engaging in, yeah. shouting at them in the street, you know, whatever. Even to the point when they were in our, our front gardens crouching down as if they owned the place, mm. like you had to be polite to them. Yes. And that's just the way we were brought up. But when I went to, um, Bala Murphy, like we weren't allowed to speak to them. And I remember on one occasion a British soldier crouched down and he was eating toffees. I don't even think this is in the book. But I was a kid and I'm standing with this dog in the lead, you know, and he offered me a toffee and I wouldn't take it because I was afraid of being poisoned by it. And he said, I'll give it to the dog first. And then my grandmother opened the door and shouted, Maria, you know, get in here. So you weren't even allowed to interact with him. And I, part of that fear was in case someone took a pot shot at them and you ended up being collateral damage around it. The RUC at that time weren't acceptable within the community and some of it, you know, was because mm. of the way in which they they performed whenever raids were happening in houses. Like, my grandparents lived in a house and people will find this strange to believe too. But because of um, loyalist hits on, and because other members of my family were targets because of the family name, they lived with a steel security gate at the bottom of the stairs with a lock and a, a key. So every night when they were going to bed, they locked themselves in up the stairs. You know, which is, you know that's just the way it was. So there was all of that kind of going on in the background too. But also, like, I mean, the RUC weren't, they? the only time you really saw them was when they were coming in the raid somewhere or there was a death in the, the estate and they had to be there or whatever um, because they were afraid of somebody taking a pot shot at them, killing them. You know, their families were under threat. So now, with the benefit of hindsight, I can see all of that. Then they were very much seen as an oppressive, malevolent yeah. force. And I think whenever then people wouldn't, you know, they generally reported very little. Maybe if the car was in a car accident and they needed insurance, people would go. But they wouldn't be seen going into the yeah. barracks to do it or whatever. So it was an awful lot then, you know, in my head whenever I was thinking, you know, like it was fanciful stuff. I mean, I went and I walked outside Grovener Road Barracks one time and mm. thought I'd go in and report this because I had it. And I still have that leaflet, by the way, it was a wee green and pink leaflet that I had picked up in a solicitor's office with the RUC car unit number on, which was the, the unit that dealt with abuse, and I couldn't, just couldn't go inside.
1: So, Maria, you're, you, you obviously developed anxiety and depression. Um, now, I'm not, I can't quite remember which came first. Was, was, this, was, was this happening from, the, from the, the, the time the abuse started, or did that get worse after the quote-unquote IRA investigation began? Yeah.
2: Well, my whole world changed after Mike. I, I uh, m- immediately my childhood went in a split mm. second once this man decided to to do what he was doing, and I had that dread feeling from then. But also, probably because of the Asperger's, the the autism. Um, now looking back, I can mm. see that dead and out feeling, or not being able to work out what you were feeling, probably had something to do with that too. But also post traumatic stress because I was really controlled in terms of trying to keep myself normal for people on the outside. No, like they knew that there was something wrong. I was losing weight. I was starting to wear baggy clothes. I didn't, my mother, or it was my mother, had put in a police statement. You know, I went from being a demonstrative teenager to somebody who didn't want to be touched. So people were seeing signals, but they just weren't putting everything together. Um, and the anxiety, Look, I don't think I ever took a panic attack until after I went public, which is interesting, but I certainly tried to kill myself prior to that because I just felt that life wasn't worth living. That was the wrong way to look at it, you know, and I wouldn't be like that now. But at that time, I went from a place where I thought I was going to be killed by the IRA to a place where I was actually willing in my head to do it, to put an end to it because those meetings and the the prolonged nature of them were just... I don't have a word to describe how damaging they were, but that fright around not knowing, you know, when the next one was going to be, or somebody, you know, coming and lifting you from a station, a radio station, or you know, I was working as a waitress at the time, or sitting outside and saying, "Right, are you ready?" You know, you got a, you got a few minutes yeah. or whatever. That is a very frightening place to be, and I think anybody in that situation where you nearly feel like a pawn in someone else's game that's being moved. So, Maria, it's just hard to, to keep that just, feeling just to
1: going, recap that bit. See, was, so, the, the abuse started when you were sixteen. Um, you told three women, you confided in three women, yeah. which was probably helpful up to a point. But somehow the IRA got to know of it, probably mm-hmm. through one of those women.
2: Yeah, well, I know definitely through yes. one of them because one of the women came back to me afterwards and she, she, I can't use the word that she used, but she said, you were screwed up, we see. And I did what I
1: had to do. So, you know. Oh, Lord. Yeah. So the first you knew of it. Even though people thought, oh, many people have decided that it was you who informed on them, you actually didn't. No, no. The first you knew of this was when this woman approaches you and says, we want you to come to this house tonight.
2: Yep. And she arranged then to see me, I think around, it was 7.30 that evening at Extra Vision, and it's not there anymore, at the top of my uh, parents' estate. So yeah, I had I had no idea. I was trying in my head to go back through the previous number of weeks, you know, is it yeah. this? Is it that? Could it be this? Could it be that? I had no idea it was about the abuse. No, none whatsoever. And that was like somebody punching me in the face when I found out that that's what it was. You know, it's nearly like watching a stack of dominoes kind of collapse in. That's what it felt like, that everything was just immediately.
1: And you were terrified, Maria. You 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 thought you might be killed.
2: I did. I left a note um, and put it under my pillow saying the IRA did this, asked such and such who, um, you know, this person was. But also there was a point in time and I remember talking about this when I first went public um, when the woman went into the flat and she was very softly spoken and, you know, she wasn't antagonistic but she was waiting on the other man appearing so she couldn't really say anything until he came and she put the kettle on and I watched the steam billowing under the counter across and I thought they were going to pour boiling water over me and if there's any indicator in terms of how frightened someone would be everything in that particular room was a weapon to me in my head because I'd heard of other stories of people going away and, and you know things happening so um, that that was very frightening and the relief when the woman then said do you want a cup of tea and sat yes. it down was you know like I, I can laugh about it now because it's yeah. so ridiculous but at that time it, it was unbelievably horrendous um, and I couldn't hold the tea properly, so I put my hands under to sat my hands then because I didn't want her thinking that I was frightened. Because I thought if I if they know that I'm frightened, then I'm fucked, you know. So that that's excuse the language, but that's exactly the way it was. And then when the other man came, he stood. There was a doorway here, and he stood, you know, like this in the
1: doorway. So his arms, yeah, folded, yeah.
2: And, and that meant then that I, even if I had wanted to get out of the room, there was someone standing
1: there, and obviously then she was able to start speaking. So, so. They asked you questions. Both of them were demanding that you say exactly what had happened to you. Yeah. I, I suppose the most shocking part of the book is where they decide that you and your alleged abuser should be put together in a room. This man, whom you had pretended to be asleep during the during the, his abuse, um, who you you're watching him come into the room, sit down. You watch him joke with another. Mm-hmm person, possibly in the movement. Um, what was he allowed to do during that? They, they said that they would read your body language and they would decide which of you was telling the truth.
2: Yeah, the, the woman who I had met the first night, um, she said she could read body language. Sometimes you could read body language to see who was telling the truth. So I was certainly very conscious going into that meeting. I mean, uh, my fight levels were through the roof then because I was checking you know even if I was like moving my little finger I was very conscious of what I was doing and I was so conscious of it that I spilt a carton of suki orange over myself you know going in um and then I became instantly calm like I could hear the footsteps coming up up the stairs and them coming in and I think everything just calmed down from that point obviously out of body experience it was too much to deal with but he was given um so just to explain um, because I couldn't verbalise what had happened in the first couple of IRA meetings using inverted comments, I sat down and I wrote out three basic incidents and I still have those bits of paper. Um, and they were handed to him and he was then able to read them out. And I think I found that very, very damaging. Sitting there yeah. opposite you. Yeah, well, he was, I was here and the woman who was taking notes was on this side of me. And over in this corner, so like a corner of the room, one guy was sitting on the floor Uh, senior Republican and then the guy was sitting on on a a chair over here near the window so I was kind of diagonal from him if that makes sense and he was allowed then to just lift the uh, shout across the room and and he got a line wrong so he was reading out one of the lines and the line had said then he went to bed and he shouted out he read it as we what do you mean we went to bed you know and he then I disputed it because I knew like what I had written and he handed it to the guy beside him to check and then he read it out to confirm that actually it said, then he went to bed. So this was all kind of this macabre dance, if you like, was was going on, um, where he he was allowed to, you know, he said you're wired up and you're a liar and and not use the language they used, and then he took particular issues. But he was he, allowed to say yeah, yeah. all this to you. Oh, I'd Was known this part for of the long time.
1: of the test? He could say what he liked, and you had to respond, and you had these people in the room. Well, assessing your reactions. Well,
2: yes, because they were basing their decision based on what had ha- happened at that meeting, you know, and they decided then after it, and it took, you know, it was a, g- a good period of a, a couple. Hold up.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: A that he wasn't going to admit it and that it had been a fruitless exercise after all of that for, for them. Mm. So what they did then was they then had to decide whether they were going to take it to full court-martial in their, their terminology or whether they were going to do something else and they decided then to bring in uh, a family
1: member. So, moving on, Maria, in the meantime, your mental health was deteriorating rapidly. Was this when you became addicted to the codeine and you were drinking a lot?
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't have been drinking. The codeine came in that year, so after that summer going into the A-level year, I certainly got into a pattern. Like, I wasn't sleeping, um, and that's probably not surprising. Mm. But my granny, who was like, you know she's dead, and I loved her dearly. She was she had a, a, an ailment for you know a tablet for every ailment and an ailment for everything. You know, so she had these reams of of boxes and boxes of cocodamol and K and all sorts of things. And I wouldn't recommend taking them, but they gave me a nice, sweet, floaty feeling to kind of remove it a bit, and that helped at that time. So I would go in into school and sit with the broadsheets up in the library and fall asleep. And I had this lovely teacher who's now dead, the librarian, Missus Evans she would say, when's your next class? And then she'd come up and tap me on the shoulder and say, you have five minutes, get yourself ready, you know, and, and off you go. So that was really good. And she obviously recognised that I was just completely busted, like, you know. Yeah. Um, And one of, the, one of my teachers, my politics teacher, came to me at one point in time and said, look, you're in course to get a straight out here, but you're throwing it down the toilet, what's going on? You know, so there were people that were spotting things. And yes, then after that, when I, I started getting involved more with Sinn Féin Youth, I drank more because there was a social aspect to it. Yeah. You know, and if you were down in Dublin and there was a meeting, everybody went to the pub and, you know, it was more easily accessible, I think, the older you got.
1: You did go to counselling, mm-hmm. and we'll, we'll skip on here a bit now. And in the meantime, the, the rapist was permitted to vanish from Belfast. Is that a fair summation? of? Uh,
2: yeah, well, I think he... It's not a great term to use, but he effectively disappeared with permission. Probably, you know, yes. um, they denied that at the time. Probably they were very baffled denied. about how he... Well, they knew he had gone, so he had been placed into, quote, house arrest in a relative's house, and that that was kind of strange at the time. Um, and he went on the Tuesday evening, and I didn't find out until the Sunday that, that he was away. So at that point in time, the IRA were very heavily saying two members of my family, you know, he's here, you know, he's not moving. And when I then said that I was going to report it to the RUC, all of a sudden this man went and my father was very strongly saying, you know, I would like him handed in the RUC custody, but this is your problem. A woman did pull me in and, and pointed at the light switch and put her finger to her lips. And then she wrote on a post note, what do you want to happen to him? And she slid it across the table, you know, and I lifted my fingers and, and made a kind of gun to my head and said, that's too easy an option and I don't want that on my conscience, you know. Um, and in my world, and this maybe explains that insular world, the avenue in terms of justice. And, I, you know, again, I wouldn't advocate this, but at that time, people, the IRA were putting people on street corners, you know, people who'd robbed houses or whatever with placards around their necks saying I am a robber. So in my head, this was, you know, what I thought might happen. And I was thinking, you know, I'll put him at the top of the White Rock Road with a placard around his neck saying I'm a rapist and then everybody will know, you know. So, um, you know, it was just a, a totally different environment yeah. to be growing up in where that if that is your your example of a level of what you think access to justice is because that's what people are telling you
1: it is, you know. You did finally complain to the PSNI as the RUC the became the PSNI, the Police Service of Northern Ireland.
2: Um, I made a, a very lengthy complaint actually unusually for a, a sexual abuse unit. I insisted. I, w- I was pregnant at the time and I was suffering from hyperemesis and I also was very frightened about, I knew once I put this down, there was no going back. You kind of cross the rubicon. nobody gives evidence against the IRA and that's what I had to do because in order to give evidence about the abuse, I also had to explain why it took me so long to disclose Dan, you know, to, to come and make a police complaint if you like. Um and I remember sitting in the, the car unit and the policeman, they, they took it in turns, it was a woman and a man. The woman came in and started with the, the abuse. And then the man came in to, to do um, the rest of the evidence, who knew what, when, what happened. And I could see him gripping the seat in anger facing me. And that was a big shocker for me because I actually still at that point thought that this was kind of relatively normal. <laughs> you know, that's probably the wrong word, but I didn't think it, it was so horrific. He got it immediately and he was enraged by it. But um, we did it back to back. So I think I did something like 13 hours evidence in the one day. Um, You know, I got most of it out in one session. Well, obviously different tapes. And the only reason that we stopped and it was in the early hours of the morning by that point was because the tapes ran out. They hadn't got any more tapes.
1: And technically, in reality, this man was acquitted because the case collapsed. Uh, well, he was yeah. He was found not guilty. He was found yeah. not guilty. What actually happened was that the case was split into three. Mm-hmm. Why was that? In Be- short, well, because the defence had put forward an argument
2: that in order to uh, test the abuse allegations, that the the IRA membership charge should go first. So I I was in a position then where it was my wor- word against his. Very hard to get a membership. Paramilitary membership charge through any court in Northern Ireland without forensics or something like that. And in actual fact, I don't think it's ever been done in witness word alone. Um, but they felt that I was a credible witness, so the prosecution agreed to the order of the trial. So, in order to admit the IRA evidence into the abuse case, so the fact that that I was alleged and he was an IRA man, which he obviously denied, that but there were really other people around Maria, because it. Because
1: yeah. this was because the first question you're asked, really, the, the defence will ask is. Why did you leave it yeah. this length of time to report this?
2: Yeah, who did you disclose to? When yes. am I? Um, so
1: in order to in order to show why you didn't, it it almost had to be proven that he was a member of the IRA and that you were stuck in this awful trap.
2: Well, it also because I had given evidence. And, you know, we've had the discussion about him coming to me a few days beforehand and asking me to move guns, and then that the other people who moved who swooped in really to investigate it, obviously meant that this man had left the jurisdiction and there had to be a reason. You know, somebody was had to be able to explain this to a courtroom. Um, so it was a domino effect on the cases briefly. There was an IRA membership charge against him and then that would have to get through in order to hear all of the abuse evidence in its entirety. And at this point in time, I was the only witness because the other two witnesses had dropped out. And then the third case was dealing with the paraphernalia of charges around whether there was an investigation or not and who, who it was that investigated it. And being diplomatic about that, uh, a defence witness turned up for the first case and that meant then that there were two people's words against mine or potentially would have been two people's words against mine yeah. and the barristers felt that that was just too high a bridge to cross in terms of evidence and it was a diplock court unusually. So for a Which means no ab- jury. No jury. Um so you'd one judge who would have been you, you have a jury, you're facing people sometimes and it should never be the case. But you know, it's human nature, emotions get in the way and they react probably better to people who are explaining abuse. So we would have been confident enough with the jury in a dip block court. And we probably I would have been confident enough in a dip block too, but in this scenario where there were two witnesses, a judge has to has to go where the evidence leads and you know Um, I then withdrew, I didn't withdraw the allegations, I withdrew my support for the prosecution and I wrote a very lengthy statement reiterating the allegations and complaining about the PPS and the way in which they had conducted the case.
1: And I think it's important to say that in the meantime uh, some more people came forward who had been abused, before you probably.
2: They were abused before me, but I didn't find that out until years later. So I yeah. took all of that guilt on. I thought I was the, the first one in there for yeah. it because I hadn't said anything that that then affected them. Those kids, and they were kids at the time, came forward actually in the year 2000, on the 23rd of July, two thousand. One of them, um, because she uh, couldn't cope with life. And she was, I think, 13 at the time the second kid had come back on a flight and she was asked when she came off the flight whether it had happened and the ira then started an investigation in vermouths number 2 and i think as long as i live the guilt that surrounded me around the second ira investigation because at that point in time then i felt that i had i not i hadn't proved it properly the first time around and it was a forced thing so like i obviously didn't want to be there But it was worse then when the IRA came back and said to everybody this is inconclusive and you can't say anything against this man because if she does he's going to sue. There's a letter in a solicitor's office and then these two kids came forward. And I thought that because I hadn't done anything the first night that I was the reason that those kids had been abused. I know now that that was not the case but that was a huge thing. And the police complaints was almost... um, a big reminder of that again. So both of those girls gave their statements and fair play to them before I could eventually get in. So I contacted the, the policeman through the rape crisis centre. I spoke to him, but I couldn't physically get in to give my actual statement because I was very sick with the pregnancy and I was probably wobbling about it too, you know. Um, and for the rest of my days, there will probably always be a regret that that actually didn't get through the court system because both of those kids deserve justice as well. And they don't, you know, they're not out in the media and they don't want to, to be there. Um, but they still have their lives to live, you know, um,
1: and it's difficult. And eventually, Maria, you did get an apology from the DPP in 2015, following a report by Keir Starmer, uh, who is now the leader of the British Labour Party. Later, you got an apology from the PSNI Chief George Hamilton in 2018, following an ombudsman report. Mm-hmm. I mean that I presumed that did you that make you feel better? Um
2: No, I think well, look, I think it I probably felt vindicated in the public domain, but that was only because my credibility had been called into question and it was then vitally important that someone came forward to say actually that you know it wasn't her fault because I was abused mercilessly online from online, you know, from bots and republicans. The Ombudsman Report actually dealt with intelligence at the time because I'd asked for it to be fed into the terms of reference and they uncovered intelligence, and this is crucial, from the year 2000, from three strands. CID, RUC, Special Branch, um, those three strands suggested that a man was abusing children and that the IRA were investigating it. And that was there all of that time, and I didn't know.
1: A big inflection point, Maria, which we'll we'll skip across because, as I say, I could keep you here till Sunday, but... I can't, unfortunately. Was the woman alone documentary, yep. and you got horrendous abuse online after that. Yep. That that has been a feature. Yeah, throughout. I don't.
2: I don't think it's as mad now as what it was mm. then. Jennifer O'Leary actually was the reporter on that program, and you know she treated me with care, as did the team, and I have to thank them for it. Um, but I, I don't think anybody has ever seen any sexual abuse victim treated as viciously publicly, and that's me now to remove looking back on it. It was appalling. All manner of things, graffiti on the walls in West Belfast, briefings to journalists saying, you know, she's not quite all there or worse, she's a liar. You know, everybody's heard the, the rumours that, that flew around at yeah. the time. And yeah. also then, you know, people public making public statements, Pierce Doherty saying unfounded and untrue when he was asked whether the IRA investigated abuse.
1: Both Mary Lou MacDonald and Gerry Adams have apologised.
2: no. Um, actually I think both think they've apologised and Mary Lou Macdonald originally the apology only dealt with processes not being put in place at the time, whatever that means wasn't an apology for the way in which I was treated by Sinn Féin and it still isn't. Jerry Adams I think apologised to every other victim but me from memory, I think he, he apologised for the issue in the round and the way in which Republicans dealt with abuse, he used the phrase ill-equipped but I have, I mean he apologised in person to me when I was sitting across a a table, I'm sorry and we're sorry and you need to look after yourself, that avuncular kind of concern. But I think Mary Lou Macdonald has a responsibility as the leader of a political party and I think the apology should be centred on two strands. One, how the IRA treated me and I think there should be an admission that that happened. And and she's able to subjectively say that she believes that I was abused. What's wrong with her subjectively saying that she believes there was an IRA investigation into that abuse? She has yet to do so. And I think it behoves her to do so and I also think that she owes me an apology for her own treatment of me and I think I documented it in the book. Now she'll have a different opinion on that mm. but I felt it and I think that she also as the figurehead for the Republican movement now in terms of Sinn Féin, uh, the current leader of Sinn Féin, I think that she owes me a hefty apology for the way in which her party treated me once I waived anonymity. I don't think that was acceptable treatment of anybody, let alone a child sexual abuse victim.
0: You
1: know, Maria, we'll leave it there. But thank you so much for coming into the Women's Podcast. appreciate
2: the time to to talk about it. Thanks.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or subscribe to the podcast and it really makes a difference to us. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan and Roisin Ingle with JJ Vernon on sound. Talk to us on social at IT Women's Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel,
0: founder of Pretty Litter.
1: Or email us on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. That's it from me. Mind yourselves, and I'll talk to you next time.